Good morning. Today's scripture reading is found in Acts chapter 13, verses 42 through 52. I'll be reading from the NIV. Hear the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. Then Paul and Barnabas answered, We had to speak the word of God to you first, since you reject it, and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life. Now We now turn to the Gentiles, for this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light to the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of, of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region, but the Jewish leaders inclined, incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust off their feet, as a warning to them, and went to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Morning. Let's pray once more. Father, what a gift it is for us to be able to gather together as the people of God here in this service where we are together worshiping you, the Son, and the Spirit. What a, what a unique calling this is, what a unique invitation it is to gather before the God of the universe and be able to offer worship through singing, through fellowshipping, through giving and sitting under the preached word. What a gift. And we know that a byproduct of that worship offered to you is our edification. So we, we realize in gathering to worship that we, the saints, are edified, we're built up, we're encouraged. Father, we thank you for that. What a day this is in the life of the believer, the Lord's day, a day set aside to give praise and honor and glory, to gather together as friends under the banner of Christ and to be built up so that we might be sent out. 
Father, we thank you so much for this morning. And I pray now as we open your word that you would incline our eyes, ears, our minds, and our hearts to engage with your word. Father, help us to see what you would have us to see. And we ask these things in Jesus' name and by the power of your Holy Spirit we pray. Amen. What are the essential components of encouragement? Is encouragement merely something that makes you feel better about yourself or the situation that you're in? How would you define encouragement? I want to ask you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, we're going to be starting in verse 13 this morning. The topic of encouragement or exhortation, as some translations have it, is at the very heart of today's passage. And as I've been preparing this week to preach to you this morning, my understanding of encouragement has been turned on its head. It's a big statement, I realize. But I've been convicted and challenged this week in thinking about how Paul encouraged and exhorted his audience. For those taking notes, let me give you the outline for this morning so that you know where we're going. Luke gives us a short introduction to the situation in verses 13 to 15. And this provides the explanation for what we are going to have in the remainder of Acts chapter 13. I believe the the remainder of Acts chapter 13 provides us with four points of encouragement, three coming from Paul and one from Luke. In this passage, Paul is pleading with his mixed audience of Jews and Gentiles to be encouraged by God and his plan of redemption. So the first encouragement is this, be encouraged by God's sovereignty We're going to see that in verses 16 to 25. Be encouraged by God's sovereignty. The second point is this. Be encouraged by Jesus' superiority. It's going to be in verses 26 to 37. The third encouragement is this. Be encouraged by God's offer of salvation. We're going to see that in verses 38 to 41. One final encouragement from Luke provided in verses 42 to 52 is this. Be encouraged by the church's success. Be encouraged by the church's success. So we have our bearings. In the opening verses of chapter 13, Luke tells us, we saw this several weeks ago, Luke tells us the church commissioned Paul and Barnabas for missionary service after the Holy Spirit revealed that they were to be set apart for the work of God that he was calling them to. A couple of weeks ago, we learned what happened to Paul and Barnabas at their first stop on the Isle of Cyprus. In this week's passage, Paul and Barnabas, they sail north to Perga and then travel by land farther north to Antioch in Pisidia. And just to avoid confusion, this Antioch is is in modern-day Turkey. It's different from the Antioch we saw several weeks ago in Syria, where Barnabas and Paul spent a year discipling the new Christians. One thing to tuck away for now and to keep in the back of your mind is the departure of John in verse 13. This is not the Apostle John. 
This is John Mark, who we know is Mark, author of Mark's Gospel. And this departure of John Mark will have major importance later on in chapter 15. So in a few weeks, we'll, we'll cover that. But just remember that when we get to chapter 15, this is the moment where that departure took place. So just for now, file that away. After reaching their destination of Antioch in, in Pisidia, as was customary, Paul and Barnabas visit the synagogue on the Sabbath. Look at verse 15. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them saying, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. In some of our translations, the, the invitation from the leaders of the synagogue is rendered exhortation. In others, we have the word encouragement. So there's probably an even divide here this morning between your translations. But whether your translation goes with exhortation or encouragement, the sense is the same. Paul is earnestly appealing to the people in the synagogue by offering to them the comfort in who God is and what he has done in history, how he has provided the, the possibility for salvation from sin through his son and how he calls us to repentance. So here's the thing that has captivated this, uh, me this week in preparing for this sermon. The leaders of the synagogue, they invited Paul to speak if he had a word of encouragement or exhortation. So this was a conditional invitation. What would you expect to hear from Paul if he was invited to preach a word of encouragement? We might expect him to get up and say some things that really empowered the people and made them feel good about themselves. We might expect that he would be very motivational and get them pumped up by blowing wind in their sails, but that's not what happens at all. What follows is a challenging sermon from Paul. He, he says some things that are going to be hard for his audience to hear, but ultimately, Paul sees the gospel as an encouragement. After all, it is good news. Friends, do we see the gospel the same way that Paul saw it. If someone came to you and said, I've had a tough day or a, a tough week, I really need to hear something encouraging, what do you have? Would your first thought be to remind them of the gospel? Would you encourage them by calling to mind how God has sovereignly worked throughout history? Would you encourage them by marveling at Jesus' superiority? Would you encourage them with the fact that God has offered to save us? Would you encourage them by pointing to the church as a reminder that what God has set into motion, it will not fail? These are not just theological truths that we tuck into the fine china cabinet and only pull out on Sundays. Paul knows these points of encouragement that he's sharing at the synagogue. They are the everyday dishes that we base our lives on. So look at how Paul began his encouragement to his audience in the synagogue. He, he wanted the doctrine of God's sovereignty to encourage them. Again, this is our, our first point. Be encouraged by God's sovereignty. Look at verse 16. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. 
In verses 17 to 23, Paul provides historical evidence of how God had, from the beginning of human history, been sovereignly working. Listen to how Paul describes how God actively exercised control over creation. Verse 17, God chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper. He led them. Verse 18, he endured their conduct. Verse 19, he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. Verse 20, God gave them judges. Verse 21, he gave them Saul. Verse 22, he made David their king, and God testified concerning him. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. Verse 23, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus as he promised. Because Paul is intent on driving home for the people hearing him in the synagogue, this this point of God's sovereign activity from the beginning of time, I, I want us to think briefly about two things with respect to God's sovereignty. A, what is it? And B, how can we be encouraged by it? So depending on our church tradition, we in this room have varying degrees of exposure to and understanding of the topic of the sovereignty of God. As best as I can remember, God's sovereignty was not something that was emphasized in my childhood church experience. I don't recall it ever being mentioned in the Sunday sermon or talking about it in Sunday school from birth to age 18, right, until I moved off to college. Granted, it could have been, but, but it was not a major part of our church, if it was at all. So if your church tradition has been similar to the one that I knew earlier in my life, what do we mean when we say that God is sovereign? Before I offer you any kind of definition for myself or anyone else, let's hear what God himself has to say about what sovereignty is and how he is sovereign by looking at his word. So Job 42, verse 2 This is Job speaking to the Lord. So Job had a very thorough understanding of what God's sovereignty was. Listen to what he says. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And then in Isaiah 46, verses 9 through 11, remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. From the east, I summon a bird of prey. From a far-off land, a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, that I will bring about. What I have planned, that I will do. It is important for us to see this directly from God's word. This is not simply a doctrine or principle that has been developed in the, mind, in the mind of man. It is reality that is plain to all who read Scripture. Whether over the natural world, the animal kingdom, the nations and their leaders, or humankind in general, God is all-knowing and all-powerful. We could exhaust Scripture and we would be here for weeks looking at all the verses that speak to this. One commentator sums God's sovereignty up by saying this it is unstoppable power and authority over all things including the human will second it is 
all in accord with infinite wisdom, infinite justice, infinite mercy through Jesus Christ. Don't we see that in Paul's preaching, especially in verses 17 to 23? Paul gives 11 examples of of God's might, power, and strength in these verses, as well as his desire and ability to provide for his people. So this brings us to the second question related to God's sovereignty in Paul's sermon. How can God's sovereignty encourage us? We have to look to the why of God's sovereignty. Why does he do the things that he does? Think for a moment about the setting of this sermon. Paul and Barnabas are a long way from home. The distance from Antioch and Pisidia to Jerusalem as the crow flies is over 500 miles. So why are they so far from home? They're in Antioch in Pisidia, remember, on their first missionary journey. The preacher of this sermon was at one time, not too many years before, an enemy of the church and a persecutor of those who were followers of Jesus. He himself was not unlike the Jewish people that he was preaching to in the synagogue. As a a matter of fact, he could really relate to them. He says in, in Philippians, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. All of this was until Jesus had confronted Paul as he traveled on the road to Damascus. Now, he was a servant of the sovereign God who had been sent by the Holy Spirit to spread the news, the good news of Jesus to the lost. Not only had God sovereignly been working throughout the course of Paul's life, everything God had done and been doing in and through human history had led to this very moment with him standing before these people, proclaiming the good news of Jesus and telling them how they could be brought into fellowship with their their creator. God's sovereignty is ultimately revealed in his mission to restore what was broken by man. All 11 examples of God's might and power Paul gives in verses 17 to 23 of Acts 13 were to bring us to an understanding of why Jesus had to come on behalf of sinners. And look at verse 24. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you suppose I am? I'm not the one you are looking for, but there is one coming after me whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. God, in his sovereignty, sent his son to provide atonement through his sinless life and sacrificial death, providing the solution for mankind's sin. And and Paul was encouraging the people in the synagogue to remember That John the baptizer, the last of the Old Testament prophets, was signaling to all who would listen that they needed to turn to Jesus to receive the forgiveness that he alone offers. One way we see and appreciate God's sovereignty is by observing how it relates to his plan and mission to save the lost. This is how we are comforted and encouraged by God's sovereignty. 
Paul was providing this Old Testament history lesson on God's sovereignty, which his hearers would not have denied. He did it so that they could see in and through this sovereignty that he had sent Jesus to make atonement for their sin. Friends, be encouraged by God's sovereignty. Without it, we would be doomed to destruction from our sin. Glory in God's sovereignty because through it, he has sent his son, Jesus. And that brings us to our next point. Be encouraged by Jesus' superiority. Verse 26, fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles. So Paul is still preaching here. It is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. And though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. For many days he was seen by those who traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, and they are now his witnesses to our people. Some encouragement is hard to hear, and Paul makes this clear in verses 26 to 37. In order for salvation to come, Jesus had to die. In order for the guilty to be saved, the innocent one had to lay down his life. Notice Paul is addressing both Jews and Gentiles. Both the Jews and the Gentiles are told by Paul, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. We've seen the the good news spreading to the Gentiles recently in Acts And it's happening again here in this very passage as Paul is addressing both of these groups in the synagogue. What is he putting before them? He's putting before them the superiority of Jesus. Paul continues to point the sovereignty of God when he says that in their condemnation of Jesus, the people of Jerusalem fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. This would have gotten the attention of everyone in the room. What did Luke tell us had just happened back in verse 15? The people had just heard the leaders of the synagogue read from the law and the prophets. Every Sabbath, by reading from the law and the prophets, a testimony from the Old Testament to the person and and work of Jesus was proclaimed to the people. Paul and Barnabas are standing before them, connecting the dots and saying, Jesus is the one that you are seeking and who has come. In saying they carried out all that was written about him, verse 29 yet again underscores the fact that God has sovereignly worked through the writers of the Old Testament to record what would happen to Jesus, the Son of God. It would be encouraging enough just to take God at his word and to rejoice over the fact that Jesus has come to save the lost. But notice what Paul does next. He encourages the people by pointing again, to the superiority of Jesus. Verses 32 and 33, God's ability to sovereignly keep his promises is seen by what Paul says. We tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son. Today, 
I have become your father. So what is the significance of Jesus being raised up? Is Paul referring to Jesus being raised from the dead or Jesus being exalted and raised up on the the stage of human history? Commentators are divided and they argue for both, but I believe what is in view here is the resurrection of Jesus, but tied to Jesus' exaltation. The reason I believe this to be the case is the context of the passage. Paul has already said in verse 30 that God raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus' sonship and resulting exaltation are connected to the fact that God raised him from the dead. Listen to Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul is not separating resurrection from exaltation. Both of these things are pointing toward Jesus' superiority. He will say, Paul will say four times from verses 30 to 37 that God raised Jesus. Now, there are other resurrections mentioned in the Bible. So what makes the resurrection of Jesus so unique? Why do we say that even in Jesus' resurrection, he is superior? Why should we be encouraged by Jesus' resurrection? Here it is. Because the only resurrection that salvation hinges on is the resurrection of Jesus. Throughout these verses, Paul is using Old Testament references to connect the promise of the Messiah to the death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus died for the sins of those who would believe in him, and he defeated the grave, proving that God was satisfied with his sacrifice. That can't be said of anyone else in all of human history. Paul, in preaching on Jesus' resurrection, makes much of the fact that Jesus' body did not see decay. And any further, we see this pointing to Jesus' superiority. King David came and he ruled, but he died and his body decayed. Peter's already preached on this back in the earlier chapter of Acts. Jesus, however, he came made atonement through his crucifixion, yet Jesus is the true and better David because his body did not see decay. Paul makes a big deal out of this in these verses because he wants us to see Jesus as superior. He wants the Jews and the Gentiles in the synagogue to see this Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament. He has come. He is superior and you should bow to him. Confess your sin. Be saved and restored in fellowship to God. Verse 34 says, God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So why did Jesus not see decay? Again, because he is superior. This was Paul's plea to those listening to him. Again, they were versed in Old Testament scriptures. They were even religious. They were what we would call church attenders, and and they, listen, they were lost in their sin. That's why Paul is pleading with them. That's why he's preaching to them, asking them to repent. 
He was pleading with them, asking them to look to Jesus for salvation instead of any form of religious zeal. He will have more to say on that in our next point. But for now, be encouraged by God's sovereignty. Be encouraged by Jesus' superiority. Next, be encouraged by God's offer of salvation. This is the next thing we see. Look at verse 38. Therefore, my friends, look at how he addresses them. I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. A justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. So Paul is about to level with these people, but because he sees what he's saying to them as encouragement, he refers to them as friends. This reminds us that we are to war against the demonic powers and system of this world, but we should not see the lost as our enemy. We remember Paul's exhortation from Ephesians that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Paul ties the superiority of Jesus to this friendly offer of salvation. It is only through Jesus that the forgiveness of our sin is offered. You know, many in the world prefer to believe in something we call pluralism, right? All roads eventually lead to God. They do not like the Bible's exclusive language of Jesus being the only way. But look at the the narrow way that Paul lays out here for salvation. Again, verse 39, through him, through him, Everyone who believes is set free from every sin. A justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. So though the route to salvation is narrow, Paul is careful to not be exclusive with the offer. Notice what he's doing here. It's everyone who believes that is set free from sin. So the way is narrow, but the offer is broad. Verse 39 is the most generous form of exclusivity we will ever see. Salvation is narrow for the reason we saw a few minutes ago. It's because Jesus is superior. He's preeminent. He is above all. He alone has satisfied God's requirement. However, we must never forget the beautiful truth that it is for everyone who believes. It's why we labor in evangelism. That's why we strive to share the good news of Jesus with everyone we know. Sharing the good news of Jesus, pointing people toward that narrow road of salvation through Christ alone to all who will listen. To this point in Paul's sermon, everything he has said has been indirect. Notice, he's referring to them as friends. He's not pinning anything on them just yet. Unlike Peter and Stephen, Paul has not implicated the people in the synagogue at the death of Jesus. Paul is still encouraging the people, but notice how a shift occurs in verse 41. Verse 41, take take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. And here we go, verse 41. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. So, Paul here is quoting from Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5. 
And Paul warns the people under the sound of his voice to believe in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of their sin or be judged by God. Those are your options. And Paul is proclaiming to these people that they can't be justified. They can't be made right with God through their efforts. In their case, by, by trying to obtain it under the law of Moses. So what some would scoff at as encouragement is Paul's desire, his humble desire for these people to not perish. Friends, are you encouraged by God's offer of salvation? Whether you're a, a longtime saint or, or someone who's sitting here this morning who has never trusted in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sin, does this bring you comfort? The essence of the Greek word for exhortation or encouragement is this. I have already mentioned it numerous times this morning. It's comfort. Are you comforted in knowing the God of the universe has sovereignly provided a way that you can be reconciled to him? Are you comfort, comforted by the fact that God the Son, he condescended by coming to live among us. He took our sin upon himself, was crucified, died, was buried and rose from the dead so that we could be made alive in him. Listen to this verse from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. It's a great exchange. What Christ had, he freely offers to us, but it has to come through Christ and Christ alone. Doesn't that bring you incredible comfort and encouragement? Jesus, knowing all the difficulty that his apostles would face, earlier on in his ministry, had told Apostle Peter that the gates of hell would not overcome the church that he was establishing. This is a good thing to remind ourselves of from time to time because of the many challenges that are often made against the work of God. Because of God's assurance, the church will not fail. We can be encouraged by the success of the church. And this is our final point. Be encouraged by the church's success. Friends, we need this encouragement because we're about to encounter, along with Paul and Barnabas, a certain insurgence of persecution and difficulty. Look at verse 42. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. So to this point... Paul responded to an invitation to speak a word of encouragement. He had preached the gospel and had given an invitation to repent or be judged. Verse 42 and 43 re revealed there was general interest in Paul's sermon. Right? The people invited them back the next Sabbath to preach again. There was even friendly conversation, and, and Paul and Barnabas urged them to heed what Paul had preached and accept the grace of God. Look at verse 44. 
On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. So up until this point, I mean, everything looks great, right? There's no persecution here. Verse 45, when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. Why were the Jews jealous? Notice, it wasn't over the substance of Paul and Barnabas' preaching. It was because of the sheer number of people who had come to hear the message. Verse 46, then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly. We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you rejected and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So Paul and Barnabas, they, they address the Jews, rejection of the gospel, publicly acknowledge there's been a major shift in the future of their mission work. Paul will continue to go to the Jews first in every city that he visits, but his ministry to the Gentiles will be just as visible. His words to the Jews, they offer us a heartbreaking summary of what is true of everyone who rejects the gospel. They judge themselves to be unworthy of eternal life. The Gentiles, they hear Paul say that he is turning to them as he references a prophecy from Isaiah 49.6. And they connect Paul's preaching to the promise of salvation through Christ Jesus alone, and look at their response in verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region. So what God has promised about the success of his church yet again proved to be true. As we've seen over and over again in Acts, the gospel is proclaimed, people believe, and the church grows. The gospel is proclaimed, people believe, and the church grows. That's encouraging, but, but it bears repeating that we must remember God's future for his church because of the difficulty Paul and Barnabas are about to experience. So we have good times, and we have bad times, and we have good times, and here we go again with the cycle repeating. Verse 50, the the Jewish leaders stir up trouble because they they get these powerful Gentile women who worshiped at the synagogue along with leading men of the city to persecute Paul and Barnabas to the point that they're kicked out of Antioch and Pisidia. But Paul and Barnabas are undeterred and they continue on to the next city. Notice how chapter 13 ends with verse 52. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. The church will experience ups and downs. Pastor Jeff mentioned what's happening in Afghanistan at the beginning of our service. We know there are Christians there who are being persecuted for their faith. So these are difficult and dark days in Afghanistan. But listen to me, the church of our great God The church of Jesus Christ will not be deterred. 
we need to be praying for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan and around the world, wherever they are experiencing persecution. I've been in touch with a friend this week, one that we support here at Trinity. He's a brother in India. He's a missionary, native of India. And he asked for prayer earlier in the week for several brothers and sisters who were being actively persecuted and had been jailed. And so we got a good prayer, a praise report last night saying that several of those who had been jailed had been released, but others still were being kept in jail. So friends, there are places around the globe right now at this very moment where brothers, our brothers and sisters in Christ are being persecuted. But my friend Shaker knows, he, he, he wakes up every morning doing what he does. He wakes up every morning praising the Lord, preparing to, to lead pastors and to preach for his congregation on Sunday morning because he knows that the church will not be stopped. So whether he's arrested or friends of his are arrested, he knows that the mission will continue. As the gospel is proclaimed and disciples are made in accordance with Jesus' command, the Holy Spirit will fill believers with joy and they will in turn continue in the work of the Lord. We've seen that here in Acts and we see it today again and again and again around the world. Pray for these brothers and sisters who are being persecuted. Friends, are you encouraged by the sovereignty of God? Are you encouraged by the superiority of Jesus? Are you encouraged by God's offer of salvation? Are you encouraged by the unwavering success of the church? God has preserved this testimony of Luke so that we here this morning in Marble Hill, Georgia, at Trinity Church, can be encouraged by these things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the encouragement that we've received this morning through this word. We thank you for this sermon that Paul preached and that Luke recorded by your Holy Spirit that pleaded in, in this preaching. Paul was pleading with the people in the synagogue to believe on Christ alone, repent of their sins, and be saved. Father, that's my prayer this morning, that if there's anyone here who has never trusted in Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sin, that today would be the day of salvation for them. Father, would you, through the power of your word, compel them to repent of their sin and believe and be saved. Thank you for that promise that we have, that for those, for, for anyone, for all who will trust in Christ, they can come to know the fellowship that all of us who have already walked that road of salvation know. Father, we're grateful for that this morning. We're thankful for what you have done in our lives. We pray for those brothers and sisters around the world who right now at this very moment are experiencing persecution. Father, help us to be a praying people. Help us to lift them up, trusting that Though we can't do much physically on this side of the globe, we can pray and we can give. So, Father, help us to lift these friends, these brothers and sisters up regularly so that the gospel can continue to be proclaimed in these parts of the world. We thank you for your love and your kindness. We thank you for this encouragement this morning.
We often consider Paul to be a serious man. But oh, what a joy it is to see this encouragement from him, this pleading and this this offer of friendship that he extends to these people who are lost. Father, may we do the same in our community, in our spheres of influence. Help us, Father, to be faithful to speak and preach the gospel to our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers. That all who are appointed for eternal life will believe. We ask these things in Jesus' name, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray.